I'm Rodney Asher, and you're listening to The World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Gus Van Sant's shot-for-shot remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. (laughs) Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I'm your host, Andros Jones, and our co-host, Brian Connolly, is not available for this intro. In this episode, Brian and I were joined by Rodney Asher, the director of films like The Nightmare, A Glitch in the Matrix, and Room 237, a film the world is definitely wrong about. Before discussing Psycho, we had to have a brief chat about Rodney's film, Room 237. I want to talk a little bit about Room 237 because we're going to be doing an episode about Room 237 after this. And, um, you know, I love the film since it came out. I've heard you talk about it a lot. And for years, I was trying to get Brian to watch it. And he was one of the people who sort of had bought into the, the false narratives around it. And then, of course, when he saw it, being a person who loves film, he immediately got how great it is and called me up and was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So mostly I'm looking forward. I wanted to see if Brian wanted to ask you some questions about <laughs> Room 237 and uh, maybe just apologize. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it for a while, for, for years. He's probably, he probably knows it better than I do if he uh, just watched it. Um. Huh. Well, uh, yeah. So <laughs> it was it's, it was a weird experience with it because when it came out initially, everybody that I know loved it at the video store. I used, I used to work at Vulcan Video here in Austin, Texas. But then I kind of was, I don't remember who I heard it from, but there was a few people that were like, oh, that's just the movie with a bunch of crazy people talking about The Shining. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to watch that. That sounds sad. And, and I'm often the person with the opinion that all documentaries are sad, so I tend to refuse to watch most of them. Um, but then I well, watched well, well, it. The world, well, the world is sad, isn't it? <laughs> the world. It's wrong. And that's the thing. <laughs> the world is sad enough that I don't need to watch a documentary. But I, you know, Kubrick is an obsession of mine, but was also kind of the thing was that I was never a big fan of The Shining. I always felt that that was... My least favorite movie is the one that I didn't get anything out of it or never, whenever I watched it, I was just kind of like, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of scary, I guess. But uh, after watching your movie, it, and not only did I like your movie, but it made me appreciate The Shining more than I ever have in my life. Just because it's just interesting to see a work of art that can inspire so many ideas and I guess so the, the first question I have is like, what what made you kind of lock in or want to work on The Shining out of all the movies to analyze, or did you have you did you hear from other people their takes on it and thought, oh, maybe there's more? Yeah, well, you know, let me, um, you know, I, I can sketch in the backstory, you know, you know, pretty broadly, but you know, at the, you know, when I when I made the film or when I you know first decided to make the film. Um, you know, it was a time where, um, I had just had a baby, um, or my wife had, and maybe I helped and, (laughs) you know, home a lot, spending a lot of time on the internet. And, 
my friend Tim Kirk who would go on to produce it and we would you know work closely together you know for years um, afterwards I think he first sent me you know he, he first sent me a link it was probably to Jay Widener's article about all the moon landing stuff and you know when I when, when I read it you know it was probably two or three in the morning um, you have odd hours you know with a baby around the house um, and there's some people who who might poke fun at that idea, but I found it, you know, really eerie, you know, um, and especially, you know, he, uh, notions that this movie that I thought was a supernatural ghost movie might have some almost science fiction elements to it was a surprise. And I, I read it and, you know, me and Tim would, we each, we each had our kids, we would go on these long walks and we would talk about that article and then, other strange ideas about The Shining. I mean, it should be taken for granted that, you know, we were both, you know, massive Kubrick heads and, and fans of the film, you know, and I had, you know, I, I had a book or two on, on on the film and one of them got deep into the numerology, you know, into the um, two plus three plus seven equals 12, you reverse 12, you get 21, which is like 2001. And if, 2001 is the story of man evolving. The Shining is the story of man devolving. You know, so we started, you know, we got hungry for more, you know, and very quickly we came across Bill Blakemore's article about the Native American themes um, and a couple others. And it became clear that, I mean, for me, I, I just come off a, a short film, um, The Estrom Hell, which was a bunch, which was in a similar style, disembodied voices talking about a media obsession, you know, with, um, you know, imagery illustrating their ideas. And it felt like this could be an interesting follow up and a more ambitious piece, you know. So we went on a hunt for as many, you know, sort of deep, eerie, complicated, um, uh, um, interpretations of The Shining as we could find. And, you know, it turned out there were a lot of them, right? Like what we get in the film is really just the tip of the iceberg. And, I mean, to your question, especially about, like, why The Shining, you know, at a certain point early in, you know, I had asked, is this the film that this, is this, is The Shining the film that we should use as this, you know, test as this test study, as this case study, right? Because clearly this was more about the idea of um, of deep symbolic interpretation than it was about The Shining, you know, per se. And, you know, one thing, you know, that I, I think was clear is that like 2001 is more widely seen, you know, as a, as a symbolic movie. And we said, well, should it be 2001? And interestingly enough, we didn't find as many things about two th about 2001. We didn't find as many people, you know, as obsessed with it as they were with The Shining. Um, and I think there's also something about the fact that, as, like your opinion, you know, that The Shining is, although it's very popular, it's also a little disreputable, um, you know, because it is a horror film. And I think the idea of getting into, you know, sort of heady, sometimes even academic analysis for a movie that some folks, you know, might think is um, a little silly in places. Um, you know, that, that 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 contrast was 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 really appealing to me. I watched rewatched it last night, and I was really struck 
this time just by the elegance of the editing. It's really, uh, that's, I, I think the first time I got so caught up in the concepts and in enjoying the ride that I missed the artistry just uh, as a, how it's all put together. Well, thanks. Have you seen um, um, Britt Morgan's new Bowie doc, uh, Moon Age Daydream? I have not. Yeah, you'll appreciate I mean, that's all archives, too. And, you know, the director edited it himself. And it's just a beautiful two-hour, 45-minute collage of, you know, everything Bowie and then everything sort of inspired by Bowie. Yeah. You know, I was... I, I was uh, one of the things that there's just the very beginning of Room 237 really struck me this time, which was one, uh, just there was three things that were disconcerting right off the bat. <laughs> one is the Highland Park logo as the world, the WB logo that begins the sure. shining. The Saul, the Saul Bass logo. Yeah. And then we... As Tom Cruise is walking, it says Europe, which is a cognitive dissonance because it, I don't even know what you're referring to. Like, are you referring to where they're shooting? Uh, where they're shooting the uh, Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, because it's, it's 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 a nice you know sort of um, triple indie that we um, stumbled over with that one because Bill Blakemore is talking telling a story about when he was in Europe. Exactly. But Tom Cruise looks like he's walking through New York, though, you know, um, Cooper kids will know that that set was actually built in Europe. Right. So he, so he is in Europe. And then he's looking at the Shining posters. And I just realized when I think about Room 237, mostly what I think about is that opening, like, two minutes. Everything else, I'm, I, I'm, I enjoy the ride and all the ideas. But if I think of Room 237... It's it's Tom Cruise walking through, just walking up to that uh, that marquee and looking at those posters. And I was trying to figure out why that is so compelling. And I think it is the combination of that, the faking the logo, then Europe, which is just like already just like throws your mind into a bunch of different places. And then he's looking at it, and then you enter the movie theater. Basically, it's really well, and just, don't forget and don't forget the you know, the power of music and sound that um, I'm not sure if at that point, you know, the um, sounds of the caretaker, who's this sort of amazing um, British, um, you know, sort of collage musician who works in like old 72s that he manipulates and distorts, or if it, at a certain point it segues into, you know, the score by um, John Jonathan Snipes and Bill Hudson you know, which is incredibly evocative. And, you know, anybody, anyone who's ever seen that shining recut as a romantic comedy, yeah, you know, where, where they, where they play Peter Gabriel's uh, Salisbury, Salisbury Hill. Hill. I mean, it, among all the other things that that trailer does is it is a testament to the power of sound over, over vision. And that by changing the soundtrack, he does a really convincing job of making you think you're watching a, um, a romantic comedy that, sound is so central to creating a mood, you know, in film. Do you, so Rodney, do you feel like in general that uh, whatever the sort of uh, negative mistake on uh, Room 237 when it first came out, that that's dissipated and most people who 
you know, who at least you were hoping would find it have been able to find this film um, without just sort of like worrying that it's like, I don't know, some sort of Kubrick conspiracy film? Um, well, it's funny. Brian might have changed my mind when he said how reluctant <laughs> he was to watch it. Because if, 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 not, if not for that little story, I would have said, although plenty of people hate it, um, I feel like it's reached a greater, a larger audience than I ever would have expected, you know, when I was making it. And, you know, the fact that 237 is about people who have wildly different understandings of the same film, mm-hmm. that when that happens to room 237, you know, it's history repeating as farce. Um, you know, it's kind of, to my mind, it's sort of inoculated against criticism that way. But, um, you know, if people hate on the nightmare glitch in the matrix, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little more exposed. <laughs> I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more naked, uh, in, 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 the, in, in, in the face of, uh, those critics. The important uh, the important part of that story is that friends don't let friends hate Room Two Three Seven, and uh, <laughs> and, they, and, I th- and you did. what you I just didn't know about it really. <laughs> and I think what I lo- what I loved about it was that you you don't kind of lean into any of the stories as being like this is the one that is true or this is the one that I think is the right one. You just kind of let them talk through the whole movie and you let the images speak for themselves. And I really liked that. And I feel like. You can go away convinced of all or one of them or come up with your own, you know, idea of what you think The Shining means. Like any good piece of art, you know, it just inspires and brings out something from everybody. Didn't Do you have your own, now do you have your own Shining conspiracy theory, Brian? No, I don't. I don't do no. any of that. No, I thought you did. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I did. There was some weird connections I thought of just with Psycho, but we can get to that when we get into Psycho. But okay. I, I guess Rodney, have you watched The Shining since working forever on the images of it? And do you have your own take on it? Well, you know, I probably I I have not watched it since um, since I started work on the on the follow up. You know, so when, you know, I was traveling with 237, you know, a lot and went to a lot of screenings of The Shining, um, some of them forwards and backwards simultaneously mm-hmm. superimposed. But you know, since then, I haven't, I, I, I feel like I've kind of gotten out of my system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I think the, the, I mean, I think a, in, in some ways, I think a lot of the theories kind of combine into a kind of anti-colonial, anti-elite, uh, you know, sort of a sort of a political lens. Yeah. And I think kind of where I sit at it at the end of the day is, you know, Jack Torrance is being tantalized, you know, with sort of the key to the executive men's room in order, you know, is to sell out his family and his beliefs, you know, in order for mm-hmm. access to, you know, money, power, influence sex glamour you know in that that's you know sort of a cautionary tale and certainly you know um you know anybody with you know any sort of ambitions has to (laughs) has to guard against that yeah yeah that's great um is there any other movie that you can think of where you would ever want to take a crack at it like this again is there anything else that has so many kind of meetings to it that you would love to figure out I don't know if I would love to do it. I mean, I would do it if that you know, was the only um, 
I might do it for strictly mercenary purposes. I wouldn't do it out of curiosity <laughs> or drive. Um, I, I kind of feel like having done it for The Shining is a uh, stands in for doing it for any other film. Somewhere out there, someone's going to do one for the Marvel Universe, and you'll be looking on sure. being like, damn. Well, and that's not even, you know, that's, was it 20 films at this yeah. point? You know, it's yeah. a decade's worth of accumulation, and and, and that's been created by, you know, sort of a game of telephone amongst numerous authors. Right. I mean, I'd be, I'd be you know, I'd, I'd probably be interested in seeing it. Yeah, because, I mean, the synchronicity, then you would take author's intention out of it entirely. Or you would, or or or, or that would be at least an, in, an interesting kind of lingering question. And especially, you know, I think the, the juxtaposition of the snap and the pandemic is, is an interesting one and and that's also the point where the marvel universe divert like you you could argue that iron man took place in a universe sort of like our own but you know post endgame you know it's no, you know it's a complete you know um never neverland and uh i guess one other thing i'd like to throw in here is just a presence that a lot of the people not a lot, but several of the people that you talked with in Room 237 were part of the the sync book community that I was a part of. They helped me put out my book, Accidental Initiations. And uh, I think we've had at least maybe we've had Alan Green on or Alan Abadessa, sorry, on for an episode. If not, we you know, probably will in the future. Um, and... This kind, there are a lot of people. If you go to the syncbook.com, that's where you can find The Shining backwards and forwards, and you can find lots of other films that are exploring this kind of terrain. Uh, not quite with the same sort of, uh, I don't know, elegance and maybe professionalism. I feel like Room Two Three Seven. I don't know. Back to the Future predicts nine eleven is <laughs> it's pretty great. Is is, is, is pretty great. That's 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 a mini masterpiece. Uh, well, uh, Joe Alexander, our hats are tipped to you. He's the director of the creator of that piece. But yes, if people are interested in going down that particular kind of rabbit hole, may, it may not be created yet, but I'm sure there's someone in there who's exploring the MCU for its synchronicities. And, uh, of course, when Room 237 hit, we all, everyone in that uh, that small uh, sort of online community just felt like, oh, my God, we're like, it, it was like back in when I was much younger and I was a musician, I used to play open mics with Beck. And it was the kind of way we felt when Loser hit it was like, oh, wow, someone from our open mic nights is now <laughs> in, the, in the New York Times. Uh, Woo. So, uh yeah, so for people who are interested in that, check check that out. There are some very interesting filmmakers there. And uh, having directed a what I consider to be a, a popular entertainment that is also a powerful treatise on film, an experimental film, it's it seems perfect that we're here to talk about Psycho and got, particularly Gus Van Sant's shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho. Uh, it's something that I know Brian wanted to cover for a while. 
And then when you mentioned that you're a fan of that, I thought, okay, well, this is how we're going to do an episode. I've been wanting to do an episode with you for a while, Rodney. So uh, you're a perfect person to talk about about this film. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. It's a dirty night. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12, in fact. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. <laughs> they moved away the highway. Oh, I thought I had gotten off the main road. I knew you must have. No one ever stops here anymore unless they've done that. Uh, but it's no use in dwelling on our losses. No, we just keep on lighting the lights and following the formalities. <laughs> uh, and uh, your home address. Time will do. Los Angeles. Cabin one. It's closer in case you want anything. I'm right next to the office. Oh, I, I want... Sleep more than anything else. Set maybe food. There's a big diner about 10 miles up the road, just outside Fairvale. Am I that close to Fairvale? 15 miles. I'll get your bags for you. I guess before we dive right in, Brian, do you want to just give a quick synopsis of the <laughs> of Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, Shot for Shot, uh, well, Psycho remake? It's, it's the same synopsis as the original Psycho, so it's pretty easy. Um, there's... There's a lady named Marion Crane who steals a bunch of money. You think the movie's about her. She goes to a hotel off-road run by Mr. Norman Bates, who seems a normal enough guy. He fights with his mom, doesn't seem too great. But then he uh, he murders the, <laughs> the young lady in the shower, uh, and then the movie's no longer about her. And instead, it's about Norman Bates and his mom problems, and also Marion's sister and boyfriend trying to figure out where the fuck did she end up. And then we're also trying to figure out what's going on with Norman and his strange mom, whom we only see the back of her head of until the very end. I don't know. I, th- I think if you're going to... I think you have to summarize it you know by putting the quotes around that right that's that is is true and then the to set it up for people who don't know what Gus Van Van Sant Psycho is all about he was off the heels of uh, Goodwill Hunting all of Hollywood was at his door trying to get him to do stuff they offered him remakes he didn't want to do it Uh, he brought up Psycho almost as a joke and then they're like, yes, please do it. And he's like, oh, well, this will be interesting. And so he wanted to make a shot for shot remake, uh, basically experimental film take on Psycho. And he had many reasons we can get into as to why he wanted to do it. And, you know, whether it succeed or not wasn't the point. He just wanted to take a big swing and try something that no one had ever really done before. Yeah, um, I mean, because I think when you when you start to get into the nuts and bolts of the plot, in a way, I think that that is assuming that the audience for this film would not know what was happening, and they kind of need a roadmap. But <laughs> and there must, have, and no doubt, there were some people who went into it who have never seen the original, never heard of the original, and had no idea what they were getting into. But you know, I think his intended audience, you know, and the and the majority of people who, you know, saw it, you know, with any idea of of what it was knew what they were getting into beat for beat and were there for the subtle variations. Um, I mean, I, 
I, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of the film. I think it's, I, I, I think it is a beautiful film and an important film and filled with both, both technically, like Chris Doyle shot it, who yeah. did like a lot of the Wong Kar Wai movies. And, you know, it's, you can talk about it being shot for shot, which it isn't a hundred percent, you know, it's mm -hmm. largely shot for shot. And I know people have done experiments where they've tried to sync them up and, you know, the timing is a little different. The framing is a little different. There are a couple of these, like these, you know, almost like a nail being driven through it, you know, kind of abrupt deviations. Um, and, you know, one of the major ones is the addition of color. And, you know, Chris Doyle, having worked on Wong Kar Wai movies, amongst, you know, other stuff, has an amazing color sense. And the colors are really beautiful. Yeah. It's just, especially, like, you look at it today, right, in our world of yeah. underwood gray digital cinema. <laughs> uh, it's just a treat to look at beautifully exposed <laughs> 35 millimeter film and yeah. something that looks like a movie. I mean, even like when you get into the rear projection stuff, um, you know, it's a movie of a movie and, you know, it, it's firing on a, uh, on a couple of cylinders and that, and the technical one, you know, is one of them, you know, the other is, I mean, for me, this is, this thing is pitched halfway between a piece of appropriation art, like, you know, a Warhol print or, you know, Salvador Dali's Mona Lisa or a tribute album. Right. Like I was just listening to this great Bowie tribute album and Rogue Wave does this version of um, Modern Love that, you know, you can hear the echoes of the original song kind of trapped in this, you know, sort of electronic reverb chamber. And that combination of what's familiar and what's strange is, is, is what really makes it. Even just, you know, seeing what different actors do with the same parts. You know, mm -hmm. Julia, you know, Anne Hesh is probably the face of the film, but Julianne Moore, I mean, this prime, you know, like just after Boogie Nights, I think era, uh, Julianne Moore. And she's able to, you know, inhabit her character with this, you know, amazing sense of momentum and energy. And even Anne Hesh at the beginning, like what's one of my favorite aspects of it is that, okay, it's going to be shot for shot, but where the real action is happening is on the soundtrack. Even though like they've got Danny Elfman is redoing the, I think, is it um, Bernard Herrmann's score? Yeah. 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 He's, he's redoing the score and is very faithful. And, you know, for a Elfman track, it's very non-wacky. It's really atmospheric. It's really good. Um, but that beginning scene is amazing because on the one hand, the scene at the beginning where she's, um, you know, where she's having an afternoon tryst with uh, Sam Loomis in the hotel, it was kind of dare the you know original Hitchcock one was daring for its day, but this one he really ramps into the skis and the sex yeah. of the moment, and does this amazing thing not only just in their performances and he makes Sam he he makes the guy naked which is kind of hilarious. Um, but Vigo loves to get naked. Yeah. Well, and apparently <laughs> I heard there was a note from the, uh, there was a note from like the studio that they wanted this to be an R rated movie and maybe he could, could put some nudity in it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah Vigo dropped, <laughs> drop his trousers. Good for him. Um, but the other thing is again, the sound that 
by adding the sound effects of the other couples on the other side of the very thin walls. Mm -hmm. They're able to create the atmosphere of sleaze in this hotel that they talk about in both, you know, because the dialogue is very, very close. But in the original, the hotel didn't look especially sleazy. It didn't look especially um, down market. But, you know, as we were talking about, you know, with Salisbury Hill, you know, the sound uh, soundtrack can do can do a lot of the heavy lifting in creating atmosphere. And they do it in this film again and again and again. There's even, there's like a nice recurring thing that he does with flies. Yeah. Like the first big digression. And some, it's a tiny little shot that lasts maybe a second when they're in the hotel room and there's a fly buzzing and they cut to like this macro close up of the fly and you can hear it going throughout, which, you know, touches on, I wouldn't kill a fly, you know, the line from the mom at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. But there's also like I was listening to the movie on headphones when I watched it as her sister's walking into the house towards the end. You hear like a little buzzing of flies like around her, <laughs> around her head, which creates this extra element, you know, of dread, of atmosphere, of horror. Well, let's 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 jump back for a second, because I want to like I, I want to talk like just get our initial takes on on the original. I like uh, I I I know I have a weird relationship with the original, uh, but Brian, what what was your original take? What was your what was your first experience with Psycho? What is your is Psycho an important film for you? Uh, yeah, I think it is. It was. Uh, I mean, the Hitchcock. We're talking about the Hitchcock one, right? Yeah, the original one. I mean, yeah, that's definitely like. I saw that, you know, being into movies, like as a teenager, like a young teenager, like middle school. And even though I had already known about kind of the shower scene because it had been parodied so many times and I was a big fan of like high anxiety and things like that. And like you referenced it in cartoons and things, but even kind of going and knowing like at some point someone's going to get stabbed in the shower, but just because, and I've seen the movie so many times since then. And even when I rewatched the original for, for this episode, I still get so affected by that movie. I find that movie just genuinely upsetting. I think the performance, especially from um, Anthony Perkins is brilliant. And I just get, even when the shower scene happens and I know it's going to happen, I get goosebumps. I get, caught up in the style of it, the tone, the music, like it really is. And same when uh, Martin Balsam's character falls down the stairs. Like I just get so wrapped up to it every single time I see it. So it's been a movie I've always loved. And I even love, I've always loved the Van Zant one, Van Sant one too. And I've always loved people's take on it. I feel it's a movie that definitely like Citizen Kane or like The Godfather or a small handful where it's a movie that is kind of, Everybody has thought about it a lot at some point in their life, even if they're not into movies. It's a movie that is just like so much a part of culture. And I love when it's like every De Palma movie where it's him trying to analyze Psycho, you know, which he is clearly obsessed with. Or, yeah, even Mel Brooks or like I love the Psycho sequels. Like I think Psycho 2 is also amazing and 3 and 4. <laughs> and so it's just like the whole world I just find very fascinating in the fact that it was made on such a low budget with just like his Alfred Hitchcock presents crew and what they were able to do technically with it and just sort of tonally and just sort of really a different kind of movie that had never been made at the time. And I just kind of appreciate it every time that I've ever watched it. And what about you, Rodney? I think my appreciation is more in my head than in my heart, which is to say... (laughs) 
which is to say I grew up reading about it, you know, and I saw like grainy black and white photos and like different, um, you know, hand guidebooks, you know, to, to film. But I don't remember really, I don't remember the first time I saw it, which was likely, you know, when I was a, a teenager making my way through the um, shelves at the video store. Yeah. And tricking off, you know, the movies that, you know, seem to be important to, to know about. Um, and it wasn't full of surprises, you know, like, um, Brian, you know, I knew there was a shower scene. I knew Norman was his mother. I knew, you know, all of the major plot points had, lo had long since been spoiled. So I kind of watched it once, maybe saw it again and filed it away. I probably, you know, have thought about it more in the aftermath of seeing the remake. Um, <laughs> I remember really liking the sequel you know, as well, and feeling really sympathetic yeah. to Norman, you know, but the remake is the one that lit me up because it hit me at a moment when I was getting really turned on to, you know, pop art and modern art and appropriation art and, and, and the idea of how you could transform something by putting it into a, into into a new context and again those subtle vibrate those subtle differences that felt like a lightning bolt you know like I, i'm really into like i, I don't think it, it it came out not too long after another movie that you know really kind of rearranged my head um swimming to cambodia mm -hmm. which you know it's a jonathan demme's bald and gray kind of performance film and you know, it's a movie that's super restrained in its approach. You know, it's it's a it's a guy sitting at a desk telling stories, and the shots are really long, and you know, it slowly moves in, and it you know, there's a, only a handful of angles. Every once in a while, they'll do a cutaway that illustrates what he's saying, and it's probably you know, if the movie is 90 minutes long, it's probably an hour and 10 minutes before they cut to a close-up of him reaching for a glass of water. And that is like a thunderbolt breaking the universe of the movie by changing, you know, by breaking out of the vocabulary that you are familiar with. So to me, the close-up of the fly, those weird cutaways during the murders of, um, of Marion and Arbogast, you know, were lightning bolts, you know, and were, mm -hmm. and, and, and were kind of thrilling. And just the whole... Technicolor, uh, uh, sort of. This is a wax museum, uh, a lavish wax museum tour through this kind of gothic Americana, right? Um, you know, and in later viewings of the film of of uh, of the original, you know, I started to appreciate it, it as a weird investigation of men and women and like American rootlessness, right? Like the way that like she leaves her home and she's want and, and she could just be, she could just be, she's it's almost like she's caught up in a tornado um, as the cops are following her and she's switching the, and who knows where she's going to wind up as she's burnt the bridges of her old life behind her of mothers and sons and even like that parlor scene is the one that gets me for it's so easy to relate in a uncomfortable way of 
getting to know someone and trying to convince them that you're not crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe that's just me, but sometimes I'll meet a new person and be afraid of, you know, of exposing too much of myself, um, in conversation and in, in a way that will turn out to be embarrassing. And I can see them like navigating, like how Frank, how real to be with each other and that they're on the, in a way, it seems like they're almost having a breakthrough into a real relationship and into a real connection before it shatters, which is really tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it, it, I, I guess the question that I started, I wandered off into the wilderness from, you know, was, was the original film, what kind of relationship did I have to it? And it took me a while to really get my head around it. But the first time I saw the remake, you know, it really spoke, it really spoke to me. For me, uh, when I saw, I probably saw it sort of the same way you did, Rodney, just catching up to all the films that happened before I was born. And I didn't like it. It didn't, didn't do anything for me. I didn't relate to it. I didn't see what was special about it. And I was, I was young and it like, it just, it didn't mean anything for me. And in general, I'm, I, while I, you know, everyone who loves film has to appreciate Hitchcock's mastery. I'm, I'm not that interested in what he's interested in generally. That I came to that after watching as many of his films as I could get in my brain, and then eventually was like, hey, you know what? I've seen them all, and not really my thing. But going back to, I actually watched the remake, the Van Zant remake first. To get that in my head, and then I went and watched the original. And this time, I, you know, and I don't mean this. This probably could be frightening to people who know me. I really related to it, um, not in the sense that I'm Norman Bates, but I feel like we're all, in a way, every man is Norman Bates because we all have complicated relationships with our mother to some degree. And so, at least we can, like, now when I watch that film, I relate. So I do relate to that, and I feel like. Probably every woman can relate to Marion Crane because they all, all all women have to be afraid that the nice guy at the desk might kill them. Well, in how many in how many men is she, you know, sort of threatened by in the in, in the in the course of just that first half right. of the film that she's in, from you know the client with the money to the cop to the car salesman, you know, to Norman, and even to well, at least well, I, I, maybe in both films. Even the boyfriend seems a little bit, in the first film he seems kind of cavalier, and in the second film it's naked Vigo in the sleazy hotel. It's not, mm-hmm. like, even though there's some love there, it's definitely, in, she's in an insecure position. She, she, she's navigating a world of predators. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the universality of it, um, the, you know, now that I understand film more, the the film it speaks to me great uh, more deeply in film language but really what really what 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 resonated the most uh beyond anthony perkins performance which is uh i feel like maybe the greatest young like the greatest young male actor performance since james dean died you know there that was the next great cinematic performance by a young actor that got to that level i feel like um, Have you seen the Queer for Fear documentary on Shudder? No, I haven't. It's a series, and in the second episode, they talk a lot about Psycho, and in particular, they talk about Anthony Perkins and 
his son is on, who speaks incredibly eloquently about their personal relationship and about what Psycho did for and to his dad. Yeah. You know, the you know, the the biggest, the broadest note, you know, about it, you know, is Anthony Perkins was in the closet and uh Norman Bates is let's say his sexuality is ambiguous right. in, in 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 the movie in a way that complicated um Tony Perkins's career moving forward, and, and and certainly complicates you know you know your 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 reading of the movie. Although I also feel like, and maybe it was, it's similar to Dean or Montgomery Clift, that some some whatever whiff of queerness is in all of those three guys' performances, the sensitivity, uh, the the hidden sensitivity or something. Uh, it's electric on film. It's absolutely uh, transcendent. Even beyond that, just the archetypal nature of those two characters and relating so deeply to both of them. Um, I now see why the film, why people consider the film a masterpiece. And I was the world that was wrong. And it's such an American story about money and cars and hotels, and sex and <laughs> hotels and yeah. Highways and, and cops and yeah, yeah, and rootlessness. That's what I don't know. So, always kind of troubles me as much as anything, you know, about getting swept away from your family and friends and everyone who knows you. So now we transition to the remake. Rodney, you've uh, you've you've spoken extensively about about what it, what in it speaks to you. But Brian, I'm curious. This was a film that you had uh, on our list for a while. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to do this on The World is Wrong? This is one of those movies that I have always had to defend. That like pretty much other than you, Rodney, <laughs> everyone has always told me that movie's terrible. Whenever I've ever tried to bring it up, it's like that movie's shit. Why does that movie exist? Like that's when Gus Van Sant became a terrible sellout director. And is basically people who just totally missed the point and don't understand what this movie is and that an experiment, which is this movie is, this is an experimental film, which Gus Van Sant has done before. Uh, but an experiment doesn't mean it has to work. It doesn't mean that if it doesn't work, it's a failure. That's the whole point of experimenting just to see what it is. And that's kind of what it feels like when you watch this movie, it's Gus Van Sant just seeing what will what will this be? What will this do? And I don't think he really knew until it was done. And it's what's interesting is it seems like everybody's kind of in the same boat as him in a way. If like they don't, they're all trying their own version of what they think they should be doing. And it's kind of, in a way, it's a mess because it doesn't seem like anyone's on the same exact page. Wait, of what you they say wanted. everybody? Are you are you talking about the cast and crew? Everybody. Yeah, I think I think I think well, I think every yeah, I think both. <laughs> Because when you watch when you watch the making of, uh, you know Christopher Doyle is like, well, I don't understand why he won't let me add this and why I can't do this and I just want to move the camera a little more this way. And there's like the costume designer being like, I want to just add a little more of of this shape and this thing. And then there's you know some people being like, no, I want to make it exactly how it was. And then you have the editor being like, why are the shots so long? I want to make it quicker. And then even with the actors, you have like. James Remar, who plays the cop, and he's basically emulating the actor from the original. And same, I think, with Chad Everett as the uh, the Southern guy with the money. 
But then when you get to the scene with like Julianne Moore and Vigo Mortensen and William H. Macy in the like the gardening store or the hardware store, and they're all and that's when to me that's when the movie really hits of like they're not trying to emulate those actors they're bringing their own thing to it and isn't this interesting they're saying the same words the angle is more or less the same but they are bringing something so different i dare i say better than the original <laughs> well i have i have a i have a similar feeling though it's funny that scene it, i felt that i mean i felt it from the top right that there's Little like the this the scene in the hotel room um, with um, Anne and and we go that because of how much more sexualized that encounter mm-hmm. is, there's so much more subtext dripping drip, dripping off of their dialogue, or at least it's so mm-hmm. much clearer. Even yeah. like he said, there's something about mailing a letter, and she says, "I'll look the stamps," and her eyes dart down below his waist for a fraction of a second in a way that <laughs> in a way that Janet Lee's didn't right mm-hmm. that yeah. there it in, in a way that scene reminded me of in Mulholland Drive the audition scene yes which strangely enough also has Chad Everett in it yeah, yeah, I, but, yeah. We've, totally. yeah. we've heard that monologue before you know in in the case of you know Psycho we've heard it in the original film in the case of Mulholland Drive we heard it when she was practicing uh, when, she, when she was practicing the lines, but the delivery, the subtext, is so radically different in the in the second version. Yeah, you know, and when you say everybody is, I, I, I kind of, I feel like you know, Van Zant does a pretty good job of keeping people in the same boat for most of it, but. For some reason, some people seem to beat up on Vince Vaughn, who I think, you know, has an unenviable task in front of him that I think he does kind of an interesting job reinventing Norman. Yeah. The the one who the one who I don't buy is William H. Macy. Oh, really? (laughs) And I like I like him as an actor. I like him in almost everything he does. And I think it might just be that hat. Oh, (laughs) oh, you got to let you got to let me jump in and, and defend Macy here, because I felt like. That like in the casting, I feel like there are one there are there are some that are better. There are some like just my own choice. It's not like empirically better, but for me, some that work better, some that work worse, and some where it's like one for one. And I feel like William H Macy doing like with his mammothness. He is he is Mark like he in the in the making his of, dialogue. It, it might just be the hat that makes him that to, to him to, to me it makes him look like you know he just rummaged in the Halloween store and found a detective outfit and and jumped to set nobody said anything. <laughs> that, that 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 looks to, to me that seems false in a way. In and it's funny because there's all there's plenty of levels of falsity in this movie. Um, that are intentional and stylized, but I don't know. Something about that hat <laughs> it makes me makes me disbelieve. William H Macy is Arbogast. No, no, I love it. I thought his it performance was is fine. I just want to. I just want to send him back to wardrobe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. He, and, he, I'm sure he'd take the note. He was looking. It sounds like during the the making of, he was, you know, he was kind of insecure in his performance. So uh, he would have, any help would have been appreciated. <laughs> Lose a hat and you're fine. <laughs> and you're fine. So just I will give you my quick take, uh, and I don't have a big take on on the the remake. 
uh, other than, you know, I, I have lots of ideas about it. But I guess if I have one big take, and I've told this to Brian, I feel like maybe this film is the last gasp of what was New Hollywood. Because it was because New Hollywood is so much built upon the auteur theory, which came out of a reappreciation of Hitchcock. And here we have this sort of next generation filmmaker having, you know, sort of the last generation that had big budget, big budgets to work with to make ambitious, independent minded Hollywood features. I feel like this film fits into that ethos and kind of ends it. He, he got the last bite of he, he was the last one at the buffet. <laughs> well, well, certainly it falls into that, you know, that notion of one for them, one for me, you know, kind of filmmakers will do a big studio crowd pleaser and then, you know, a, a more independent minded um, personal film that Soderbergh seems to be able to pull off. And in a way, I would compare this movie to uh, The Good German, which I don't know. It's either, I don't remember when that came out. It's plus or minus just a couple of years, probably, that he tried to, you know, it's a, it's an original script, but it's, he shot it very much to look like Casablanca and to be in conversation with Casablanca. And I remember stories from it in which the grips were furious because he forced them to wear ties like they did back in the day while we're, while working with, while working with, you know, ancient giant hot, um, the, the the older and um, larger hotter you know kind of lamps no no i should this is making me think i should go back and check out that film i remember it leaving me cold but i didn't have the rosetta stone of knowing what it was supposed to be in in communication with yeah i haven't seen it for a long time but i i remember finding it kind of interesting but not really retaining it certainly i loved the way that it was shot well one of the things that I know we wanted to look at with this was sort of looking at the the Psycho remake in terms of what it has to say uh, about the auteur theory. Since, again, like I said, that whole idea was sort of inspired by Hitchcock and a few other directors of his ilk. What do you think that the that Van Zant's film is saying about that and just the idea of a shot for shot remake? Well, I think um, I would my my gut level answer is that it's like a really powerful test of the auteur theory, right? That even in something so similar, can you feel the director's hands? You know, I'm not an especially big fan of the Grateful Dead, but mm -hmm. there's a Jerry Garcia quote that I like a lot, which is "style is what you get wrong." Mm -hmm. You know, so. In that, you know, with, with, with that in mind, when you look at this film, it isn't the things that he gets exactly right that talk about Gus Van Sant's taste, sensibility, style, talent. It's the things that it is the things that are wrong. It's the things that are, it, it's the deviations. Um, in the same thing in a cover version, in a in, in a cover of a song that can totally reinvent a song. I think. Um, I think it, I think it's a test and a successful test of the auteur theory. That the more you know about Gus Van Sant, the more you can probably feel his yeah. hand in this film. But you know, when I, my two cents about the auteur theory, you know, is that yeah, 
analyzing a film through the lens of the director is interesting and often re rewarding and will often open up um, themes inside of the movie, but you'll have similar luck, you know, looking at a film via, you know, its writer or its star or its composer, you know, that th those will each open up, you know, other aspects of the, you know, of, you know, the project. The expanded auteur theory. That there are multiple auteurs, there are multiple authors to a film. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and looking at it through each of those aspects, you know, is going to, like you can look at the cinema of Tom Cruise, right? Right. Or you could look at the cinema of Stanley Kubrick, and then and then looking at Eyes Wide Shut through each of those windows is going to be very different. I'm right with you on that one. That's a very synchronistic view of film. Brian, do you want to talk about how you feel like Van Zandt's Psycho speaks to the auteur theory? Well, I think in it, what I took, what I got out of it when I first watched it, which got me so excited, is, is that you could do kind of a shot-for-shot shot remake. You can use the same script. You can try to do the same framing, have the actor stand in the same place. But because you're not the same person who made the original, it's going to feel like a different movie. It's just going to come out different no matter what. And uh, it's it's almost like a like a paint, like someone doing a forging of a painting event you're gonna maybe pick up on a little something a little different on there but this one you pick up on a lot different and i think it's like i don't know i just really it, there is so much gus van sant in this movie even though he's trying to ape hitchcock that's it he just can't escape it you know <laughs> with just his the little decisions or the big decisions he makes within trying to remake it and i just find that so interesting and then also i think it challenges the idea that so many people have that the auteur theory is just about the director. When you, when you watch this, it's also so much about the actor, like what the actors brought to the first movie, even though they have the same words, is very different than what the actors are bringing to this movie. And it's also different that it's in a different time period. Like you can have them say the same thing, but because this is 1998 and not 1960, it just, it all is about how every movie is kind of zeitgeisty in its own way. And I just feel it just speaks so much. It kind of destroys the auteur theory in that it's not just a director, but I think it adds to the fact that auteur theory works for actor. And like so much, it's this movie's so a Christopher Doyle movie too. And like, I just love this every part of that, that it really is about the collaboration behind the movie. Even if you're trying to do an exact kind of replica of the original, it's going to come out so different. Hmm. So the two biggest f fans of this film basically have the same take on it. That's <laughs> well, Brian, probably, Brian, Brian probably said it better. <laughs> no, I think it was, it was great. He was basically doing a shot for shot remake of your. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm Van Santing your Hitchcock. But like I love but I love like the choice to like cut out the part at the end about him being a transvestite. And even th this is in the 90s when that wasn't even as taboo of a thing to not talk about. Like the fact that he chose to take that out was interesting and great because I feel that is kind of the date, one of the dated things of the original. Um, well, the and, more that you take out of that psychiatrist speech, the better. <laughs> even if Robert, even even if you have Robert Forster doing his low key best. In yeah. fact, if you know, I think if if I if I were to recut the film, 
I think my notion would be to, um, as he starts to talk, fade up other sorts of sound effects, you know, flies or other people talking or mm -hmm. do um, sort of internal voiceovers for Julianne or Wigo, the way that Norman and uh, uh, Marion had before, that they've tuned out his baloney monologue. Because <laughs> it's also, because <laughs> not only is it boring and redundant, it's also, He's he's either made gigantic leaps uh, of of thought himself, <laughs> or he's taking a very elaborate, strange confession at face value. <laughs> instead of in, instead of the simpler, well, he's he's talking in a funny voice, and he thinks, and he thinks he's his mother. I'm not sure what's going on there. Which you what can I, what... get from the zoom in, from which you can get from the push in to. Yeah, you know, to Norman with a monologue. I, I do, I do kind of miss. Like, I get why they cut out a lot of the monologue, but I kind of love in the original how long and stupid it is because it's like it doesn't matter your answer. It doesn't change the fact that this these people got murdered and this terrible. Like, you can analyze it all you want and have this big explanation. It still doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. Completely, <laughs> it's so completely unverifiable. Yeah. And... <laughs> like after one day, like not even a full day, it feels like they just had him there for like an hour. And they're all like, this is his life story. Let me tell you, because I'm a doctor. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I think Roger Ebert might have said that the purpose of that monologue was to allow people to calm down from the uh, final scene where Norman lunged at her with a knife yeah. and everybody was screaming that yeah. they were still okay. muttering and <laughs> screaming and, and, and covering each other. And they, need, and, they, and, and they needed to kill time before we got went into that final close up. And my, my favorite part of the Van Sant one that really shows him, and I, def I definitely feel it's like it's a huge comment, is that when the movie ends where they're pulling the car out of the water, then it just pulls back into this beautiful shot. It yep. feels like something out of my own private eye. Like that's when it's Van him being like, and just so you know, this is me. This is me. Make I made this movie. And so the last minute is actually nothing to do with the Hitchcock movie. And this is something you would see in a Gus Van Sant movie. And I love that ending. It's, it's also so comically long. Like even after the last credit is rolled, we sit there for like another minute and a half. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, in by, by today's standards, we're expecting something to happen. Um, but I don't know. I, guess, I suppose what I get out of it, you know, is that... You know, even the most beautiful parts of the country have their secrets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's another, you know, sort of, you know, act of cinematic sadism, you know, for <laughs> for, 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 for for the people who don't get it. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it so much. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cast. So we, uh, we, you touched on Vince Vaughn. Let me say, get it out of the way. So I, I watched it after, and I, that was... I'm interested to, to hear the pro Vaughn takes. The whole time I was watching it, I was trying to think of who at that time would have been better to cast and what would be the hurdles. Like, I, is there a fear on the part of likable actors to play this role because of what it did to Anthony Perkins? Um, I feel like Vince Vaughn doesn't, you know, he doesn't, portray likable everyman-ness and so it, that changes it and for you know and this is not to judge better or worse but uh but as a choice like i was thinking like couldn't they have got like a 
you know, like a Depp or a Cusack, but maybe they would have turned it down or maybe they wouldn't have been right at that time. But I am curious if either of you, when you watched it, were thinking, hmm, could there be could there have been better casting for this? Or not? Or do we love do do you guys love <laughs> Vince Vaughn as Norman I, Bates? I, I don't I don't know if I love him, but I like it because it is so different. I like that he is doesn't even look like Anthony Perkins. Like at least and Hayes, like they kind of made her look like Marion Crane, sort of. I mean, maybe just on the haircut, but like Vince Vaughn seems like a big guy and a beefy guy. He's not like a skinny. Like he doesn't seem like a guy that would be picked on in the same way that like the Anthony Perkins Norman Bates. This just feels like a weird guy who has mom problems in a different in a different sort of way. And he plays it. It's the same words, but he plays it so differently. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I like him. I, I don't know if I if it's a grand slam, but it's a solid double or triple. Like what I <laughs> what what I, what I think is interesting, you know, as as Brian was saying, is he, he's a big guy and he's like a conventionally good looking guy, mm-hmm. but it feels like I, I think he does a good job of portraying someone who is not comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. You know, and who's like he only stretches up, I think, to his full height in that confrontation with Vigo near the end. That yeah. mostly he feels like he's embarrassed of how big he is, and you know, like his laugh is a way of kind of short circuiting what might be otherwise be his charm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that he's, you know, like if he went to a party and he didn't say anything, you know, that some people might might, might find him attractive, but <laughs> then, but but every time he opens his mouth, he ruins it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he does. He does the best he can being Vince Vaughn. I just wonder. If it was, you know, if there was a cat, there was a better cat casting choice. And again, what the hurdles would be like are is someone who's more traditionally likable going to want to take this role for fear of I don't can't imagine they would be afraid of what happened to Perkins happening to them. But you never know. But or were they if they went and cast someone who looked more weird like anthony perkins would they just be kind of copying it and it's just not so interesting you not know? really weird like but just had... likable like vince vaughn yeah. seems like a creep like well, one I of the things know, i like anthony about perkins him. is uh, i don't know if anthony perkins is incredibly likable no i don't think he is <laughs> i feel sympathy for him <laughs> maybe that's um, it like there's a but i don't like vince vaughn he, is someone he, who i like he's a wise cracking I... jerk but i don't <laughs> i don't feel sympathy for him I, but yeah, I mean, I think well, it's also hard to be a winner. Yeah, <laughs> and well, Norman is a loser. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard too because when this movie came out, and even when you watch it now, you just remember Vince Vaughn from like Swingers, whereas Anthony Perkins was Norman Bates because you didn't really know him from anything before Psycho. Well, so the it's tall kind of story to... with Jane Fonda. Come on. Oh, sorry. But it's like it's hard to not have that baggage for Vince Vaughn of like he was that cool dude in Swingers, you know. Yeah. And I think he, I think he had kind of the hardest job of anybody. No, oh, definitely. Just because, of course, you know, because he is filling the one of the most the iconic most roles, mem- the most memorable role in the original. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the most memorable yeah. roles in film <laughs> history. So yeah, but I, but I feel though to compare that to Anne Heche, I think she's really interesting. Oh, in I this. think she's great. I think she's great because she she had even admitted she had never seen the original. She had never seen it. And so she is playing it so different than Janet Lee because Janet Lee is like tough and just there's something kind of like just about about her that is like where in this movie 
Anne Hayes is playing it with like a Southern accent. She's playing it a little ditzy, even though that's not on the paper. That's just who she thought this character would be like, which is so interesting. And so the scenes feel different. Like I feel like in the original, Janet Lee feels like maybe she could have taken Norman Bates if she knew he was coming for her, you know. <laughs> but because she was, but because she was surprised by it, she because she has that same thing Jamie Lee Curtis, her daughter, has where it's like you just seem like a tough lady. Like no one wants should mess with you. You could like really like hold your own with some guy but because you were naked in the shower you got killed and isn't that too bad whereas Anne Heche there's a more of a vulnerability and it is more nerve-wracking the scenes with Norman Bates when they're just eating sandwiches because you're like oh something could really bad could happen to her which I never really feel and if you haven't seen the movie and if you don't know you know if you're one of the handful of people who went into this thing cold you might even be surprised that she steals the money yeah yeah because in this one, she seems like a little nicer. Like, why would she do that? Whereas Janet Lee is like, she wants to get the fuck out of there. Then she hates this cowboy guy hitting on her. She's going to take the money and run. You yeah. know? <laughs> and yeah. so, so in this one, it feels like maybe less a surprise that Anne Heche gets murdered because she seems more like a person that would maybe be in a slasher film or would be in a horror film. Whereas Janet Lee is more like, to me, feels more like a character that a man would have maybe even played in a movie. At, uh, you yeah, know, which, which goes, that, which goes back to, you know, you're talking about, you know, how, how seismic a change in a film the cast makes. Yeah. Right. And even if Hitchcock yeah. had cast other actors in the film, it would have been a radically different movie the way this one is. Yeah. And you and you and you yeah and you hear about movies all the time where it's like oh Tom Selleck was almost Indiana Jones and like that really would have changed the whole damn movie like a choice like that that a director has to make is a really serious choice because it really will determine the entire film which is a dumb kind of obvious thing to say but this movie really proves it like you know <laughs> and when else are and when else are you going to get that chance except for you know like the deleted scenes in Back to the Future with um, yeah. Eric Stoltz. Yeah, you know, just you, you might get a handful of shots if somebody got recast, but this is that. I mean, this movie in a lot of is also a science experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about experimental film, it's like, well, what is it? Because like the Manchurian Candidate remake, the Jonathan Demme one, is a really interesting film, but it's not doing what this is doing. No, you know, and you know the the the, the, the script is radically different, even though it's you know in Meryl Streep. You know, is there's, there's hardly any relationship between Meryl Streep's character and Angela Lansbury's. Though it's yeah. interesting to compare and contrast them. This one, it's you know under much more rigorous scientific <laughs> principles. <laughs> not not to like stray away from talking about the cast, but I think the thing to me that's like maybe the most interesting failure of it, or the most like oh that's I didn't think about that before, was like so much. Like, like you have like Shakespeare where you see every different version of like Hamlet. It's the same words. And unless they change the setting, like in the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet, it kind of more or less gives you the same impact from most of the versions of it. Like some that really go wild, go wild. But like for the most part, when you're watching a version of Macbeth, you're like, okay, they really studied Shakespeare. They're doing the words, but they're, they're bringing their thing to it. But it more or less feels when you're just redoing a play it's a little different, but because you're adding to it uh, shots that are familiar to people, not just words and music and and tone and all these things, I think that's where a lot of people get confused by it because you have, I think with a movie, every movie is so much just about the whole package and that's kind of where your memories are locked in. 
And that's why people don't get as upset when it's like, and here's another, you know, Romeo and Juliet. But I think because so many people and most people had just the original Psycho, not just the performances, but the music and the angles and like it, but the way it was then to have someone kind of copy it, I think throws people off. I think it's just like, you, it's, and then maybe this is why you can't, this is why you can't really do this. That's why you can't just have a remake be the same script and try to make it exactly the same because it isn't going to quite connect with people in the same way or in the way that they hope. I think the problem is spending, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars they spent <laughs> on it and releasing it in every multiplex <laughs> in America when it's a specialty art film. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and I think people weren't prepared for that and still maybe aren't. Are there any other performances that you feel are worth highlighting. I'll say for myself, Chad Everett as the sleazy Texan, <laughs> as the, the the sleazy whatever the 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 sleazy client. Uh, I forgot that he was the same guy as Mulholland Drive, and God, there's just uh, that guy should be in everything. He's great. He's, that face, that super weathered smiley face. I don't know why he isn't in everything. He's so goddamn. He's great and sleazy in this. Uh, I really but, like James LeGros as the uh, car dealer. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Really great. You know, not yeah. a real throwaway part. You know, but he makes it. <laughs> he, he really makes him a real guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like I like Flea as Bob, the guy who brought a sack lunch to the uh, <laughs> store. <laughs> That's a character I always liked in the original, and he did it justice in this one. Uh, you you yeah. see a spinoff with like a sort of like. Uh, uh, Sanford and Son with Vigo Mortensen and Flea, yeah, running yeah. a junk shop. <laughs> Baker Hall <laughs> as the sheriff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. He's good. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like you know P.T. Anderson overlap yeah. in here, which you know in Prime early P.T.A., which is yep. very welcome. Yeah, at least three. Yeah, and I feel like to me the real standouts are Julianne Moore and Vigo Mortensen because I find the people who play them the original to be really dull. And to me, that's when the original... Well, especially the, Sam in the original. Yeah, yeah, it's just nothing. In the original, he just looks like a handsome kind of soap opera. Like it just, he's just kind of there to serve the plot. And same with the the, the, like the lady who played uh, the sister. But in this one, like the moment Julian Moore shows up and she's just like more upset about everything, like she's like really bringing it. And then Vigo from the first scene, he is like really playing it in a very different way and, and making those, those characters come to life. Whereas in the original, I feel they're just duds. Yeah. What about the guy who played the Ted Knight character? <laughs> the Ted Knight character? Did you know that Ted Knight's in the in the original Psycho? No, as what? Uh, this... He he is the guard guarding the the prison cell that Norman's in at the end. When oh, I wow. watched it, I was like, oh, that's "Wait, funny. is that Ted Knight?" He's, yeah, he's kind, of, he's kind of like Leslie Nielsen, who once he went comic, retroactively ruined all of his previous dramatic performances. <laughs> well, it's an uncredited, basically not even a featured extra role, but yeah. it's still Ted Knight. And I was, I, I went back and watched the guest fans. That one I was like, did they stunt cast anyone interesting? But no, no, it would have been cool if they had cast. If it was Leslie know. Nielsen, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was Will Ferrell, well, Betty White. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i feel it would have been cool if they had done some like gender reversal and i'm surprised that gus van sant didn't do that but i think maybe that's going too crazy that's getting a little too off you know for people but you what, know, like I, uh it, like maybe uh 
Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter as Albergast, Arbogast, maybe? <laughs> or who knows? Yeah, I feel... And same thing with ethnicity. It would have been cool if it wasn't just white people again. I feel kind of those are the things that I, I think maybe if they did this now, they would kind of push it, push those boundaries of it, you know? How about you, uh, Rodney? Is there anything that if... Like, you've talked about a couple of things, but is there anything that you would have liked to have seen them try with this? Um... For the again, for the most part, I'm really into it, right? I, you know, I love the, you know, the fidelity to the original title sequence. You know, mm-hmm. though, now, though now it's you know in bright colors, and you know, I remember reading that Hitchcock wanted to do like a fly into the hotel room, but you know, had to, um, you know, had to uh, settle for kind of a zoom in instead. And Gus is like, well, I can do that. Um, which is which was kind of awesome to trump him <laughs> in the first shot of the movie. Again, it's my, the, the the biggest the, the the biggest change I would make is let the fade fade the audio of the psychiatrist and just listen to the air conditioner drone um, <laughs> louder. Yeah. <laughs> and what about like favorite our favorite variations? I know you talked about the fly at the beginning. Oh, I love the shower curtain, right? That it's got this sort of crystalline um, pattern on it so that, you know, it's maybe a little on the nose, but when Norman comes from behind, he's fragmented. It's also mm-hmm. just, you know, kind of you know, a beautiful little, uh, a, a beautiful little touch. But, it, but, you know, again, when you're that close to the original, details like a different shower curtain have a dramatic change. Yeah. Highlight, you know, yeah. That, that baseline of fidelity highlights everything that you change. Yeah. How about you, Brian? I love the umbrella she has at the car dealership because I don't think she has one in the original, does she? It's like a little parasol. Yeah. And I, that feels like a, a, a Christopher Doyle touch that he's like, you better have her have an umbrella while she's walking around. It feels like something you would have. Or like the pink, like the pink uh, paint in her um, apartment that sort of matches the um, watered down blood that goes down the drain. Yeah, some of that feels very much like him adding, like that's kind of feeling like parts of a Wonka Y movie or something. Like, I don't know. I just, it's like, got this interesting pastel palette that is yeah. so unusual by today's standards. Yeah. I, I mean, I would go as far as say this is one of my favorite looking movies of the 90s. Like, I really love the way it looks. Oh, the, the um, other thing that I love is, uh, sorry, is how we put, and, and I think he did this at Universal Studios, that he changed what the house looked like mm-hmm. which you know i'm uh, you know I, I, i'm i always like to see like when like in rob zombies halloween when he <laughs> things that frustrate anti-fan service you know so like that giving fans like giving refusing to give fans what they want yeah <laughs> and, thing, and refusing to give them the dopamine kick of seeing the familiar um, yeah. Bates house up on the hill. And it must have been like great expense because that wasn't no digital touch-up. They built a no. like, three-walled facade that was three stories high around directly around <laughs> the beloved uh, Bates home. And I feel like touches like that is him saying – I'm not replacing the original. Like, you don't have to get mad at me, which so many 
critics did of like, I'm not trying to say throw away the original and this is the new one. They can both exist and they both have their own little thing going on. And it's okay. It's fine. Calm down. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing I've made, I've made peace with about remakes in general. You know, like Robocop is a, a favorite film and the remake came along and, you know, I certainly don't like it as much as the original, though there are some interesting touches to it. But, you know, what happens, you know, when the remakes are released is that the original typically gets, you know, a nice restoration and is easier to find. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as history goes, you know, some of the, um, you know, lesser remakes, you know, get pulled, get pulled back out to sea mm -hmm. while, the, <laughs> while, while, while the originals remain. Uh, yeah. And I, and like speak, speaking of remakes, uh, I just think what I really, really also really loved about this movie is that like, this is coming off of like the eighties when there were so many remakes, like the fly, the Cronenberg's the fly or Carpenter's the thing like horror remakes where the director changed like uh, so much and added so much of themselves in it and really made it more personal and really made it more, you know, like their definite take on it. Whereas this one, Gus Van Sant does the opposite where he's like, I'm going to take myself out of it, but then because of it, I'm still going to end up in it somehow. And I think that's just an interesting take way to do a remake. Yeah. Well, again, it's like a tribute album, right? Yeah. More that it were, you know, a piece of appropriation art, you know, not a, you know, knockdown renovation. <laughs> there, I wanted to just jump in about my two favorite uh, additions. One is that, I don't know if you noticed, but in Norman's bedroom, he has an evil Knievel action figure. Oh, uh, I didn't see that. I love it. I also had. And so, again, I find myself relating to Norman Bates in ways that I uh, <laughs> that express the film's power, but are, are not particularly comfortable, comfortable to me. And Brian, I'm surprised you didn't mention the bed indentation, which clearly was a massive <laughs> Jack influence and Jill. on yeah your favorite film, Jack and Jill, the Adam Sandler film. <laughs> the one that uh, I was was, was there was there a girly magazine in the original? No, I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't think so. Scene where Julian Moore kind kind of uh, is, is almost going to laugh out loud as she oh yeah his uh, porno magazine. <laughs> We haven't a, talked about the addition of him jerking off. To yeah, her. which I too was the most controversial thing of the whole movie. I feel that's like the most complained about part. Yeah, from well, I love it again. It. That's that's the power of sound, right? Yeah. Like the shot is the same shot, but you yeah. have the sound effects, and it is a whole and, and you are radically changing the <laughs> of what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, and I think that's you know like the sound effects of the of the people in the in, through the thin walls of the hotel. It's another place you know where you're demonstrating <laughs> how much sound design can <laughs> change your just, change your movie. Getting an R rating just through sound design, not even words. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The sound fit is enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was a little disappointed that it was more clear in the original that Norman Bates is eating candy corn. And in this one, you couldn't really, even though it was in color, that wasn't as clear. But maybe that wasn't even what he was eating. Well, that's interesting, the Halloween candy. Yeah. Brian is a connoisseur of food and film. Oh, Seems like what he, what he always notices. <laughs> it's what I lock in in because I'm hungry all the time. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> My wife had a friend who was interested in like teapots um, and teapots in film. And like that's the only thing like he could see was <laughs> while watching. And I remember 
trying to understand what it was that held his interest. And we, and we just quickly looked at two and said, well, look how this one's stem is extended forward and the other one has it pulled back. It's like, this is a giving generous teapot and this one is withholding and selfish and i could totally see it and it blew my mind and you know again because because of the subtle deviations in this film to the original you know that's where all the magic is and i think any connoisseur of death metal or like tim is really into um frankenstein movies and this one um western serial and by watching a hundred of them, you know, you can, what, what stands out, what makes an impression is the subtle variations from the um, pattern. Yeah. I, totally, I mean, it's maybe not a full length feature, but I would love to see a short film about the teapot guy and no, his take yeah. on film history. Like what are the greatest, <laughs> what's his top 10 film list based upon the presence of teapots? Like, uh, what would it be? I bet he would love the horse's neck. The Alec Guinness film we covered that on an there's earlier. A lot of episode. tea. I, yeah, I think there's there a lot of some in the in the earrings of Madame De or um, La Ronde, maybe. The Get Back movie had a lot of teapots with the Beatles mm. drinking tea. Oh well, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, let let's talk about some other any other films that you feel like get into this terrain. Uh, yeah, that, I, I had I had two that came to my mind when I watched this again. The big one was the obvious one was Funny Games. Michael Haneke, ten oh, years later, re- remaking his own movie, doing a shot for shot remake, except for one thing. He did he changed one thing, and I don't remember what it was, but he wanted to do a shot for shot American remake of Funny Games, but changed like one ten second thing, and that's interesting, especially if you watch them next to each other like that. Is it kind of plays in the same way as this in terms of the performance? But that's fascinating because it's the same person remaking, doing yeah, a shot for shot remake of their own little, thing. It feels a little different to me um, that that's about America and Europe and like more mm-hmm. money in a mainstream movie. There's as opposed to like again, this feels to me like it could be playing in a you know, at the Whitney in a black box and, yes. you know, to great acclaim uh, that this is, that that his, this film is, has like a, a real Cindy Sherman vibe to me. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in funny games, I remember too, in the remake, there's a weird thing where like the sidekick villain, his nickname is like Tubby or Fatty or Chubby mm-hmm. or something. And in the original, the actor was actually overweight, but in the remake, he wasn't. But he, wouldn't, <laughs> he didn't change the name. Well, who knows what? <laughs> Why then? <laughs> like maybe they made him cast someone else, but he said, I'm not changing the name, man. That's oh, man. Don't you hate it when an actor gets on set and just lets themselves go and, you know, they <laughs> drop 20 pounds? <laughs> <laughs> the actor gets in shape before yeah. you read your film. You become a Vince Vaughn from a, from a from an Anthony Perkins to a Vince Vaughn, uh, and then the other the other movie that I thought of was the kids who redid Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they tried to do a shot for shot remake for no money on a camcorder, and a lot of that feels like <laughs> unintentional high art if you've ever had been lucky enough to see it because I know it's hard to watch, uh, hard to find, but I like that's a great one where it took them like you know, like eight years of their lives to do a shot for shot remake of Raiders and doing a pretty good job, actually. Um, Have you seen that, Rodney? No, but I, I'm certainly familiar with it. Um, and then, you know, 
it seems like Todd Haynes was playing in this territory a little bit with Far From Heaven and mm-hmm. one of my favorites, I'm Not There. Uh, yeah. His well, Dylan film that isn't really... I would say Superstar, well, Superstar as well. Well, of course. Yeah, Superstar, Superstar was an incredibly important movie for me. Um, yeah. I think for like, I think for everyone who ever came in contact with it as an idea, especially yeah. when it was before the internet. Yeah, you no, had I, I, think, I think Superstar find... and Van Sant Psycho are need to belong on the same shelf in the video store. And just so people, you want to describe for people who are not aware of Todd Haynes' Superstar. Do you want to describe it, Rod? Yeah, it's a short. It's a short film. It might be twenty minutes long. Um, I believe it was shot on Super Eight, and it is a warts and all, very heartfelt, sympathetic, you know, um, biopic of Karen Carpenter. Um, but all, you know, but the the um, the cast are all Barbie dolls. Yeah. 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 And you know, but it's not a joke. You know, it's deadly serious. You know, and will wring tears out of you by the you know by the final act. And because it's Barbie dolls, and you're dealing with a story about anorexia, there's an inherent comment on what drives people to have such negative body image and it's, yeah and he made yeah, it as well, a student and... and then immediately was sued by uh mattel and the carpenter family and yeah. it's been impossible to see except i hear there's a been... rest- i hear that he's recently restored it and that there's some path to uh, citizenship for it it's a it's a it's a weird i i kind of like that there are still films that are deep underground that way yeah that you have to <laughs> seek out that are difficult yeah, yeah I, there's something I about we, 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 got, we, we, we got that new joker film yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, well yeah people's joker yeah but again i would I, I would but i would also again i'd suggest that um a good german film by soderbergh perhaps um Sure. What else would go in this? We would we, we, we would go in this category. Maybe I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe Cindy Sherman's Office Killer. Hmm. Not familiar with it. What's the it's deal the, there? It's the only feature that she ever filmed. Um, and it's on paper, it's sort of a slasher film, you know, about a office worker who's driven to murder. But you know, in some ways, it's evocative of her, you know, of her photography where she's kind of imagining herself into you know the world of cinema. Yeah. I I, just, I wish there was more of these sort of big budget experimental films. It's such a rare thing that's allowed <laughs> to, to happen. There's Starship like, Troopers or Natural yeah, Killers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. But these are all the 90s like, it, like yeah. it's uh and I feel like the only like it really is like and by directors know, who've had big hits. But you need to do a big hit and then you need to be able be willing to throw it maybe all the way. You know, like you have to be able to be you like this hell, might be a hell of a poker face uh, when you're pitching it. And I think that I wished I feel like all filmmakers should do this. I really wish it was like, oh, I made my big movie and now I'm gonna do the biggest swing ever and maybe they'll never let me make a movie again, but I'm gonna make the movie that goddamn it, they'll I'll just <laughs> it'll ruin it. <laughs> That's Magnolia, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think. And it's yeah. um, it's uh, what was his uh, Jojo Rabbit? Without without getting into the, without getting into you know, the details of either of those movies, I think they're filmmakers who had a big hit and then were able to you know do a really large, ambitious, um, personal film. Yeah. 
I'm also thinking of like New York, New York is a good one like that. Another one people hate where it's like such a weird idea and such so much money to make a movie that's to me experimental. Oh, one from the uh, heart. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think Coppola did it more than once. I feel even Apocalypse Now is like an experimental film. And The Conversation. Uh, yeah, I think he's, I mean, maybe his new one, maybe that'll be the next great one. The one that he's putting $100 million in will be the next biggest experimental film. Yeah, I think that could, because I, I love it. I feel we need more people just taking chances and and maybe you have to do it in like the Paul Verhoeven, Gus Van Sant way where you just do it in secret and you don't tell anyone it's an experimental film until it's done. Yeah, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a popular genre film. <laughs> and it's, but referencing Lenny Raffenstahl, you're like, Oh, I didn't. Okay. Whoops. I, we didn't know. It's, uh, it's different, it, but it might fit into the similar, it's very different, but it might similar fit into a similar, into the conversation. Uh, when Louis CK stealth released Horace and Pete, like a 10 episode series that he filmed without letting any without letting anyone know and just dropped it and it was well, or, or there was that awesome. movie he made right before right before he got canceled yeah um, i love you daddy which you know like like most people i've never seen it but the conceit of it was he shot it like manhattan but it's about a predator director like woody allen like woody allen like the accusations against woody allen yeah so yeah. that's a that's a, that's a, that's a hyper that's a, that's a you know he's yeah. using like this film you know or, or some of these others we've talked about he's using the style to you know comment on the substance right so, and then of course it becomes even more synchronistic when, and meta yeah when it happens when to him real life you know in uh, injects itself yeah um so interesting so, uh, Brian, you uh, you wanted to give your uh, your regular report on the Razzies and how they <laughs> savaged this important film. So, like, it's interesting because when you when you watch, I watched the Siskel and Ebert when they reviewed this movie, and when you read literally every uh, review from a critic, they just none of them get it. And they just hate it. They hate this movie. They don't understand. They all are just like, why did they remake this movie? And they're just, which is stupid because this is their job. And you think they would be the ones smart enough to be kind of in on what there's, what's trying, this movie's trying to accomplish, but yet they aren't. Uh, so they all have failed. But the Razzies, who are the biggest failures of them all and my mortal enemies, um, they, Gus Van Sant won worst director for this. They gave him the worst director for this film. Over, you, over Michael Bay for Armageddon, over Roland Emmerich for Godzilla, also a remake, over uh, Jeremiah Chetchik for The Avengers, and over Alan Smith, a.k.a. Arthur Hiller, for an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn. But it's just like, did you give it worse director? Like, it just means you really don't understand. Like, I don't even think they watched not, it. Not, I bet that they like, those, not that any of those movies are award-winningly bad. Some of no. them are. I don't know. Burn, the, the burn, huh? that, that's pretty rough. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't seen it, but it might, I'm sure I'm sure it's an interesting artifact in its way. It is. It's very interesting, but it is. It is. I see why people, someone would take their name off it. But yeah, the other <laughs> ones are fine. But, uh, yeah, it's just crazy to me that I think they just didn't see it. I think they're just like, how dare you make Psycho? You lose. You won. And then it also won, of course, uh, Worst Remake, tying uh, with Godzilla and the Avengers. So they couldn't even you know, figure that one out. And then the third one, which I think is just mean and stupid, is that Anne Heche is nominated for Worst Actress, 
lost to the Spice Girls for Spice World, <laughs> but did they zero it on her over? And there, no other actor is is in there. But this was also I don't know if this was a time, but this was around the time when Hollywood was turning on her because she came out of the closet. So I don't know if that's part of that, perhaps. Um, um, Anne, Anne Hesch was kind of a punching bag there for a while. Yeah, and I think it was the six days, seven nights that she was a star of. That she came out before the movie came out, and then they didn't want her on the red carpet. The studio's like, don't even show up. And Harrison Ford is like, well, fuck you, then I won't go to the red carpet unless I'm standing next to Anne Hesch, which makes Harrison Ford cool. Uh, and then he, they then were like relenting, like, fine, she can be there. That's just mortifying. That's just mortifying. And this is 1999 or 98. Like, you think we were yeah. better than that, <laughs> but we weren't. And then it's just, tra- it didn't, she just still is, you know, the tragic death of her, you know, RIP Anne Hesch, you know, uh, very recent death, which is just kind of sad. Um, but yeah, fuck you, Raspberry Wars. She's great in this. It's crazy. She I, is great I, in this. Yeah. No, I agree. And, yeah. and and you can and if you don't and, and if you hate on this movie because it's you know, for its lack of originality, um, her performance is is completely original. She's not doing a Janet Leigh. She's no, yeah, she's really good. Yeah, yeah I agree. And uh, before we wrap up, I, Brian and I talked extensively about Gus Van Sant in our Even Cowgirls Get the Blues episode. But uh, Rodney, just in general, I'm, I'm curious to get your general take on Gus Van Sant as a director. I'm a fan, but I don't know his stuff. Um, um, chapter and Verse, um, To Die For is a great movie, River's Edge. Um, <laughs> Elephant is one of the greatest movies that I never want to see again for the rest of my life. Cool. Um, I'm a big fan Um, of my own private Idaho. Yeah, he's great. Um, I don't actually, I just, I don't want to correct you, but I, and I'll just take it out, but I don't think he, I don't think he directed River's Edge. Uh, That was directed by. Oh, you are, you, 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 you are right. Uh, I can't it feels it. like it, it should, should be a, a, a fancy. fancy well, it's, yeah, it feels very like uh, <laughs> Pacific Northwest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. To Die For is a great movie. Uh, that's yeah. the best. That's my favorite one of his, I think. Um, but boy, Elephant is brutal, but also <laughs> beautiful, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also a remake. So he was doing another remake there, but made but very different than the original. So before we wrap all this up, is there anything that you want to let people know about that you're working on, Rodney, or uh, where people can find your work? Yeah, well, um, I'm not going to have another film project out for a while, though I am a talking head in a conversation sort of like this in a Alexander O. Philippe's film, Lynchaz, where... He asked a handful of us to look at the work of David Lynch through the uh, by comparing and contrasting it or poking at the influence of Wizard of Oz. That's exciting. That's finishing up its festival run, and then it should be released soon. And coincidentally, you know, Alexander did an entire feature, um, not just on Psycho, but specifically on the shower scene. Oh, he did that one. What's the name of that one? I love that. It's called 78 slash 52 Psycho Shower Scene. And that's 78 cuts in 52 seconds. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, Well, that's the one that you're going to be in is called Lynch Oz. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's, it's played a few festivals already. I'm going to finally see it later in the month. I'm going to finally see it uh, (laughs) next month. 
in San, in San Diego. Nice. Exciting. Exciting. And, uh, before we part ways, Rodney, I just want to tell you, we share, an, we worked on a movie together in oh, a way man. where I was the lead of the letter P segment for ABCs of Death 2, and you directed the letter S segment for ABCs of Death 2. Oh, I directed the letter Q. Or Q, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, so we're right next to each other. <laughs> which one So which one was yours? What was the... So mine was called, the one I was in was called PPP is for Scary, and it was directed by Todd Rohal. Oh, yes, and, yes, and yes. I, and I made it uh, yeah, it's like the Three Stooges in Hell. Yes, yeah, so I'm sort of the Mo character, and I have a big fake nose and a mustache, and I'm just like stuttering, and I'm nervous, and I'm the last one to die. So. Yeah, oh, that, that is very, that's a very unnerving uh, piece. <laughs> nice work all around. Thoroughly Wait, and Brian, uh, Brian, wasn't there some connection you had between The Shining and Psycho that you wanted to mention? Oh, the two things that popped in my head that I thought were interesting, and who knows what it means, but Mick Garris directed Psycho 4 and The Shining TV remake. So clearly they both have an effect on him. And then Henry oh, and they're Thomas. both in hotels. There's both, uh, there's both uh, yeah. um, frightening bathroom scenes. Yeah. And then Henry Thomas is Norman Bates in Psycho 4. And then he plays uh, Jack Torrance in Dr. Sleep. So Okay. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sure trying to get everything in there. Are. I'm they're sure there's more if you dig. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, there always is. The from the from the director of Room Two Three Seven, you know. Uh, there's always there's always oh, a story the more, the more in every look, shot. The more, the more you look, the more you find. Even if it's just the placement of teapots. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, Rodney, I, I I just I'm very glad. I'm always happy to to talk with you about film, and I'm glad we got you on this. And I can't think. I, I think we probably picked the perfect film to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I was very happy to have an excuse to, uh, to rewatch it. Now I've got to listen to the commentary tracks. Ooh. Yeah. And just honestly, because I'm just, I'm going through my own just sort of midlife dealing with my own mother issues. I am so glad to put this, these films in my rear view mirror and pay it and watch something stupid tonight. <laughs> Something right. stupid and benign, because, oh, uh, God, Norman Bates, I don't want to relate to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody does. <laughs> so, well, uh, again, yes, thank you very much, Rodney. And uh, maybe we'll find another film that the world is wrong about that we can talk about in the future. Sounds good. Talk to you later, guys. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. And that's it, folks. The end of season three of The World is Wrong podcast. If you've been following along, you know how the season took an awkward turn at the end. And I, for one, would like to apologize for the ways I have been inadequate to the challenge of the moment. While I also hope that some of my instincts were good enough to maintain the spirit of the show even as it spun out of my control. I was planning on taking a hiatus, but as luck would have it, 
Another project I've been working on needs a home beginning this February, and I will be releasing that as season four of the World is Wrong podcast. The Other Paul Williams is a limited run series featuring the director, Paul Williams, who we spoke with in our episodes about his film, The November Men, as well as in our episode about Don Juan DeMarco. Paul's memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hit Men, and Holy Men, is due to be released by Kentucky University Press on February 14th. For the podcast, which will be released in conjunction with the book, Paul will be reading excerpts and outtakes from his book, discussing them with me, and taking questions from our audience. Here's an excerpt from a piece I wrote to promote a retrospective of Paul Williams' films at the Roxy Theater in New York City later this year. Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, they all figure in Paul Williams' story, and he and theirs. During those tumultuous years, Paul found himself at the fiery heart of the political movements of the time, filming the Black Panthers, hanging out with Eldridge Cleaver, Huey P. Newton, Abby Hoffman, and Fidel Castro, while dating whip-smart actress-artists like Margot Kidder, Karen Black, and Julie Christie. In the course of Paul's story, he doesn't hesitate to name the names of the famous co-stars in the historic cast of characters that populate his life, but the ultimate story of Paul Williams is of a lucky guy who achieved early success in the belly of the American beast, Harvard and Hollywood, and found it ultimately unsatisfying. I'm sure you can see how I'd relate to that. Well, Paul's story fills in some major gaps in my understanding of New Hollywood, and I hope that's something you'll find interesting. I know it's going to be a departure from what we've been doing, but that was kind of inevitable. And I believe that the other Paul Williams podcast is in the spirit of the World is Wrong podcast. Of course, if you have any responses or suggestions, you can always write to me at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast and on Twitter at world is wrong pod. Brian's other podcast is the director's wall where he and his co-host AJ Gonzalez dissect a filmmaker's entire filmography. At this time, they are currently finishing up Francis Ford Coppola. My other podcast is the Radio 8 Ball Show. In fact, you can find all of my stuff at my website, previouslyyours.com. You can also find it at andrasjones.com. The Radio 8 Ball Show has its own site, radio8ball.com. And uh, yeah, come find me. I'm going to be putting out a lot of music in the next year and a lot of projects I'm working on. Links to Rodney's pages and sites will be available in the show description and at the page devoted to uh, this podcast on the website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. The other Paul Williams podcast will be launching on February 14th. And until next time, please remember that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. What was it you want to ask me? Looking for a missing person. My name's Arbogast. I'm a private investigator. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to trace a girl that's been missing for, oh, about a week now. Mm-hmm. From Phoenix. It's a private matter. 
family wants to forgive her. She's not in any trouble. I didn't think the police went looking for people who aren't in any trouble. Oh, I'm not the police. Oh, yeah. Private investigator. <laughs> um, we have reason to believe she came along this way, might have stopped in the area. Did uh, she stop here? No one stopped here for a couple weeks. You mind looking at the picture before committing yourself? Commit myself? You sure sound like a policeman. <laughs> Look at the picture, please. Mm -mm. You're sure? Yeah. Well, it's possible she used an alias. Marion Crane is her real name, but she could have registered under a different one. You know, I don't even bother registering people anymore. One by one, you sort of drop the formalities. I shouldn't even be changing the sheets, but old habits die hard. <laughs> oh, which reminds me. What's that? The lights. The sign. You know, I had a couple last week said if it hadn't been on, they would have driven right past. It looked like an old, deserted... Now, you see, that's exactly my point. You said nobody had been here for a couple of weeks. Now there's this couple came by, and uh, yeah. they, they didn't know you were open. Yeah. Well, as you say, old habits die hard. It's possible this girl registered under a different name. Could I look at your book? Hmm? Thanks. No. Yeah. Got, uh, got the date here somewhere. See, there's no one there. Got a uh, sample of her handwriting. Oh, yeah, here we are. Marie Samuels, that's an interesting alias. Is that her? Yeah, I think so. Marie, Marion, Samuels, her boyfriend's name is Sam. Was she in disguise by any chance? You want to look at the picture again? Now, look, Mr. Arbogast, I'm not lying to you. It's just that... No, 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 no. I, I know that. I know you wouldn't lie. It's just... It's, it's, it's hard to keep track of time around here. Oh, I know. I know. Radio 8 Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.